This podcast is produced and copyrighted by 83 Bar Incorporated. It is presented as a general informational resource, and neither the sponsor nor the guests are rendering any medical advice. Any opinions or claims presented by the guests are their own. Welcome to The Patients Speak, healthcare innovations accelerating the patient journey. We share interviews with healthcare executives, medical providers, and patient advocates. Here's your host, best-selling author, Mark Stinson. Welcome back to our podcast, The Patients Speak, where we're combining the business and science innovation of healthcare with the patient voice and how we can accelerate the patient's journey from diagnosis to wellness. I'm so happy today to have as my guest a physician and a medical executive, Dr. Alan Vascanian. Alan, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Well, and Dr. Viscanian sees patients. He also has a role as a medical director in the Cedars-Sinai Medical Group, overseeing about 300 physicians in a multi-specialty practice that includes primary care and medical specialties of all kind, including pediatrics and OB-GYN, and is the author of a terrific new book, Reclaiming the Joy of Medicine. And this is a great story about uh, sort of overcoming the burnout factor that a lot of physicians are feeling and Dr. Viscanian, maybe we can just start there, that patients experience and often feel the frustration of their doctor when sitting across the table from them. What can we learn from understanding the, the physician burnout? What are the implications? Mark, that's such a really great question. My focus has always been on the patient side and how can we make that experience great for our patients. But then as a physician and as a executive, I realized that if our physicians are feeling burned out, that has a direct impact on the patients. And then during the pandemic, I was placed on the patient side of the room and I realized that burnout itself directly impacts patients and their family members. Burnout causes lack of ability for physicians to extend compassion and empathy to their patients when their tank is empty. And that's why I think burnout is such an important issue for us to pay attention to. And the subtitle of your book, I think, gets to that is Finding Purpose and Fulfillment and Happiness. Today's medical practice is often filled with bureaucratic tasks, you know, record keeping. Uh, patients have often said to me in focus groups and other boards, even eye contact while they're trying to I... tap into the health records is a frustration. What is it from the physician's point of view, though, trying to achieve better patient outcomes? You know, it's such a unfortunate situation right now. Our healthcare system, you know, people always say it's broken and it has been broken for many years. And some people argue that maybe the healthcare system is not broken. It's actually working the way it was designed, which is really more healthcare system centric and less patient centric and also to some extent less physician centric. So the example of not making eye contact when the electronic health records were rolled out, uh, a lot of physicians kept complaining that this is not a friendly system. There's a lot of clicks and I cannot make eye contact with my patients. However, there were a lot of policies and mandates that required the use of electronic health records. There are a lot of benefits to it, but then there's a lot of downsides and unintended consequences. And 
no one really addressed those unintended consequences. One of them is this lack of eye contact when you're sitting behind a computer. But the other one is that when physicians end up leaving the room, they spend a lot of time in front of their computers doing what we call desktop medicine. If you ask a lot of doctors, but especially primary care doctors, what is one of their biggest root causes of burnout? They will tell you the amount of time they need to spend in front of computer instead of in front of their patients. Mm. We have this term called pajama time. It's the time that doctors are spending at home when they should be playing with their kids, spending time with their family or loved ones. They're spending it in front of their computer at home after work. So on average, a primary care doctor spends about 90 minutes. And some people argue it's much more than that. For my book, I interviewed a lot of doctors. Some of them were saying it's two to three hours after they get home, they spend in front of computer. It's not good for doctors, but it's not good for our, our patients either. You know, and one of the things that you mentioned just now was being health system centric. But I think the promise sometimes of a large medical group like this is, you know, you would have access to all these doctors under one roof or at least under one system, the access to uh, maybe specialists, uh, the communications that all the health records could be accessed. And I wouldn't have to retell my story and my journey over and over. So there there was a promise of an improved patient journey. Do, do you see that some of these benefits are helping the patients? You know, yes and no. I feel like it's getting better. However, um, the experience part of it has not improved. So there are now patients that when you start asking them the same questions, they say, well, it's in my records. Check that. And I like that. I like seeing patients advocate for their rights and to say, hey, don't ask me that question again. It's I've mentioned that 10 times, 100 times already. The problem is that also there are flaws in the system. So sometimes I just saw a patient that had allergy listed to a medicine in the records from years ago. And everyone was saying like, oh, we shouldn't be giving this medicine. This patient is allergic. So I asked the patient, I said, is it true that you're allergic? It was an uncommon medicine. Very few people get allergic to it. It was listed. I was like, oh my God, that's so old. I don't know who put it there. I've been trying to remove it. It's everybody thinks I'm allergic. It's like, okay, let's remove it. So there is a balance. There's certain things that we need to ask, even though it's in the records. One example I'm going to give you that it's really a source of frustration for some of our patients is when it comes to our transgender patients, sometimes their legal name is used. Uh, and there's this concept of called dead naming, where mm -hmm. people won't use that name. However, on the electronic health records, the name that was given to them at birth is being used, or even worse, the pronouns. And that leads to a lot of frustration for patients and also on the provider side. So yes, there are some amazing benefits that came from electronic health records, but electronic health records are not talking to each other now. So some sometimes based on what system you're on, you still are lacking that critical information for your patients. On a medical group, multi-specialty medical group side, that is addressed because now you could see everybody's on the same system. So you know that a patient got their colonoscopy or they got another procedure. Yeah. So pros and cons, I think it's getting better, but we're not there yet. We'll continue Mark's interview with today's guest in just a moment.
Our sponsor, 83Bar, offers proven patient recruitment solutions for medical product launches and clinical trials. The team at 83Bar can help you achieve better patient outcomes, find client success stories and market reports, along with resources like videos and publications, all on their website, 83Bar.com. Well, I can imagine that you also see many patients with comorbidities or even, you know, what might look like two separate diagnoses. And so, you know, they're going from a gastroenterologist over to the allergist because they have these related symptoms. And I think this is what I was mentioning that that some patients would say, well, why am I responsible for taking my manila folder of tests, you know, from doctor to doctor? Can't they all log in and see what I have? Yeah. Not to mention the fact that it's still on a CD or uh, on a fax. (laughs) Right. I I think there's very few places that still use a fax, but (laughs) it's one of them. And I mean, there are uh, certain rules and certain regulations that now allow patients or mandate clinicians to release the records right away to patients. So patients have that ownership of the medical records. And that has been a little bit of a transition for physicians and other clinicians, because there are some jargons and lingo that we use in healthcare. It's not intended to be in any way perceived as negative. uh, And it makes sense when two physicians are talking about it and using those terminology. However, when a patient reads that record, they can perceive that as inappropriate or not sensitive. So I think that some of the recent regulations have forced a lot of us physicians to really think twice about some of the jargons we use in our medical documentation. Well, and I'm sure you have a chance to consult with the manufacturers or the pharma companies or even medical technology companies about how to improve these tools and how they can be better applied to patients. What are you seeing in some of the improvements? How are these tools contributing to better care? I think what comes to top of mind is the way care was delivered virtually during the pandemic. Overnight, we were we were forced to deliver care, see our patients through video visits and different technology. The technologies were very clunky prior to the pandemic. We couldn't use, for example, FaceTime or some of those easy to use technologies that everybody now uses to communicate with each other without having to sign multiple forms. But due to HIPAA regulations and various regulations, the systems that we end up using in healthcare sometimes are very clunky. They're not user-friendly. So the pandemic forced everybody, the technology companies, physicians, and also to some extent patients to start using technology and improving that technology. So now the pain of using a video visit, it's much less, there's been a lot of improvements made in that. Before the doctors like, oh my God, there's so many clicks I need to go through to get to that right platform to use with patients. It's not not as easy as Zoom or FaceTime. The technologies we were using were very old school and clunky. Well, we've been focused on a lot of technology tools and communication channels, but I wanted to go back and underscore word they used empathy. In your group, how is that, I guess, trained or measured? I know we try to measure the patient experience and give feedback on how was your visit and how was your care and relationship with the physician, but throughout the practice from the physician 
to you know med techs, nurse practitioners, PAs, all along the visit. How is empathy built in to the patient experience? That's a really good question. I think I can speak to kind of my experience and what I have seen over the years about empathy. I feel like, you know, there's this big debate. Are you born with empathy or can you learn empathy? And that's been a point of debate over the years. And I do feel like a lot of people who go into healthcare, a lot of physicians, nurses have empathy. Like that is the drive. And that's why I wrote the book about finding that purpose that drove us into this field. So if someone doesn't have empathy, which I still don't think there are people who do not have empathy, maybe it's less or they don't know how to tap into it, or there are ways to train them. And some of it is by education. And there's a lot of resources about perception of empathy. And someone might have empathy, but there's minor behaviors that they have that they're not aware of that leads to a feeling of lack of empathy. And what are those issues? They're very basic things, such as listening to people, making eye contact, repeating what you hear, acknowledging that what they just shared with you is difficult and painful. And I think for me, my specialty is hospice and palliative care. And that field is a field that is really focused on compassion and empathy. It's helping patients at the end of life. That's where I developed my skill set in being in a room where a difficult conversation is being had, issues related to life and death are being discussed. And how can you not have empathy in a room like that? But I realized that some of it, it's yes, there's ingrained, but some of it, it requires practice. So for us in palliative care, we created opportunities with trained actors and actresses who act as patients. And I conducted sessions where we're, we were being videotaped and having a discussion with someone who was a trained actor, but they acted like real patients and putting you in that environment, having that conversation, and then afterwards watching the video with a mentor who would provide feedback. That's really where, when I was able to personally hone my skill set. Yes, I can see how that would be so useful. You also mentioned palliative care, and it reminded me, I wanted to ask you beyond just the eye contact about the power of touch. Uh, I'm talking with another author and researcher in a couple of weeks about this idea of touch and the value that even in a physician encounter, but especially in palliative care. Uh, what's been your experience there? What's your view on the, the science or power of touch? It's truly like that's the art of medicine. I think when we talk about the science of medicine, there's a lot there, but the art of medicine is knowing when it's needed and when it's the right way for maybe holding someone's hand, that those are all the arts that are harder to teach someone. But I think it's powerful. It's very, very powerful. And it's important to have that understanding and ask for permission. Like, uh, you know, would it be okay if I hold your hand? I know mm -hmm. this is very difficult. I think that's, I guess, one nugget that I've learned that if someone feels that the patient would benefit, I think always thinking about the patient first, like what is this patient's need or family member's need? And I can give you an example of someone who was a respiratory therapist did this for me. Early in the pandemic, my mom had a stroke and was hospitalized. 
it was very stressful for my entire family. I'm part of a large Armenian family. It's kind of like the, uh, what is that movie? My my large Greek wedding. Oh, like sure. That. Yeah, it's very similar. <laughs> I can picture it now. Yeah. Yeah. It's so when we heard about the news of my mom being in a community hospital, the whole family rushed there. Me, my brothers, my cousins, my aunts, everybody, we rushed and we were stopped in front of the hospital and saying like only one person per 24 hours. And my mom was going to die within hours. And here's like 12 family members, all very connected to her. So I wrote about this experience in the book, and that's where the impact of burnout is. When people are burned out, they have less empathy. They're less likely to say, okay, how would I feel if I was in the shoes of these family members? And when people are not burned out and their fuel tank is full, that's where those acts of empathy and compassion come out. But anyway, I was going to give you an example of a touch that worked. I was in the ICU room alone with my mom. She was intubated and they were going to remove her breathing tube, which meant she was going to pass away within a few minutes after that. The respiratory therapist who came in, I will never forget this person. You know, he just looked at me. We were both wearing masks. That was very unexpected. I just, it was devastating for me. One of the most, the saddest moments of my life. And he very just gently put his hand on my shoulder and said, I'm sorry, man. And that that was it. But that was a very good use of touch that he used. And I, I just remember him. I can picture him. He was wearing a little pin with Black Lives Matter. Just that small touch, that small acknowledgement of how sad I was and that he saw me and he knew that what I was going through was painful. And the touch was very meaningful to me. Now, can I see how two or three seconds, look at what an impact and impression it made on you. I mean, yeah. you, can, you tell that story with such detail. I appreciate you sharing a very personal story. Right. Sorry about your loss of your mom. Thank you. So, Dr. Viscania, thinking about then the patient's journey, as we've been talking about all the different communication tools and the empathy and compassion for patients, Taking this all together now that the purpose of both the physician and the patient is clearly to get better, you know, to feel better and experience life in a better way. How does the joy of medicine, how could that contribute to that journey and making it better? That's what it's all about, right? It's about making someone feel get better when possible. And when, when like cure is not possible, a lot of doctors feel like they're failing. And, oh, my God, I can't cure this cancer. Oh, my God, this stroke is permanent. But when cure is not possible, I've learned that healing is always possible. And it's that small touch. It's that small acknowledgement that you let someone else be seen and getting joy in that, that you made a difference for someone's life. And it's unfortunate when physicians forget about that aspect of it. I feel like being a doctor, being in healthcare in general is such a privilege when you are sitting in a room with a patient and you can just make a small difference to make their life better. How can you not have joy from that? If you can't get joy from that, that leads to burnout. So I think that's where I said my book is focused on going back to the purpose uh, why people go into healthcare? What is that? Why? Why did you go into healthcare? And then remember that and get joy from making that improvement in someone else's life. Mm, so encouraging. 
Well, before we close, I have a question about other treatment options, but I want to remind the listeners we're talking with Dr. Alan Viscanian. He's the medical director of the Cedars-Sinai Medical Group and author of a great book that was recently published, Reclaiming the Joy of Medicine, Finding Purpose, Fulfillment, and Happiness in Today's Medical Industry. Well, Dr. Viscanian, the presenters of this podcast, 83 Bar, are interested in patient recruitment and identification for clinical trials. And I wondered what involvement or pathway your group is offering clinical trials as an option to patients that they might want to contribute to research for future medicines. Obviously, partnering with large academic centers that provide research and being aware of all the available research out there, especially as it comes to new interventions and cutting edge treatments and offering resources or list of research trials that patients can see if they fit those criteria. For me in Los Angeles, I'm aware of all the major academic centers in the area and what researches they offer. I think one thing that I'm really happy to see happening is that there's a lot of patient advocacy groups that share uh, research, or I have patients that sometimes come to me and say, hey, did you know for this condition that I have, I found a support group, I found a study, kind of, I found a network of people I can reach out to, or I found a study, a new study that's being conducted at this other university. So I think for me, in my field, in the area I focus on, I'm very familiar with the research that's happening, and I offer that to patients when they need it. Very good. Very helpful. Well, thanks again for joining us on the program, Dr. Viscanian. I feel like I got to know you better as a doctor, but also as Alan, the person. Yeah. And I appreciate both of those. Thank you so much, Mark. Yeah, I think my, I remember when people would used to call me Dr. Viscanian, I always would look, I'm like, who are you talking about? Yes. Beyond in my career. But I think over the years now, I'm more used to it. Most of my patients call me Dr. V because my last name is very long. A little but tongue twister form. Yeah, exactly. I really appreciate, Mark, uh, you taking the time and interviewing me. Really enjoyed it. It's an important topic, and I know we're going to all enjoy reading the book. Listeners, be sure to connect with Dr. Viscanian, Dr. V, in yeah. his book, Reclaiming the Joy of Medicine. It's available on Amazon from New Degree Press, wherever you get your books. So for now, I'm Mark Stenson. Come back again next time. We're going to continue these conversations. We've been talking with healthcare executives of all kinds, from all kinds of companies in pharma and biotech, diagnostics and devices. But we've also been talking about clinical providers. We've been talking to patient advocates and patients themselves about the importance of listening and what we need to hear when the patients speak. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to The Patients Speak. Healthcare Innovations Accelerating the Patient Journey with Mark Stinson. Presented by 83Bar, the patient activation company. Learn how 83Bar listens, educates, and navigates patients at 83Bar.com. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Subscribe now so you won't miss an episode of The Patients Speak. If you like this podcast, here's another show that you'll like from BSB Media. The Patients Speak, healthcare innovations accelerating the patient journey. It features interviews with healthcare leaders, patient advocates, medical providers, and researchers. Presented by... 
83 Bar. Look for the patient speak on your favorite podcast app.